Well, good morning again. I want to start us off with a question this morning. When you think of Jesus Christ, what, what attribute comes to your mind? What, what character quality of Christ comes to your mind when you think of, of him? I was going to say probably I suspected the first answer would be love, right? A lot of us think of his love, and, and rightfully so. Um, Jesus himself said in John fifteen thirteen, Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Uh, the Apostle Paul, he said in Galatians 2, 20, um, The life I now live, I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So certainly love is a, is a predominant attribute of Christ. Uh, perhaps you think of his humility, right? I mean, because we know he humbled himself, became a man, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2.8 says we think of him washing his disciples' feet, right, you know, just hours before the cross. And so we think of his humility. Many attributes, but the reason I start us with that question is this morning in the sermon, I want us to think about the power of Christ, the power of Christ, the authority of Jesus Christ. At the beginning of chapter 8, if you'll remember, Matthew recorded three miracles of Jesus for us, then followed by uh, some teaching that Jesus gave on the cost of discipleship. That's what we studied last week. Now this morning in chapter 8, verse 23, we come to another group of three miracles that Jesus performs. The, the calming of the storm, the casting out of a legion of demons, and the healing of the paralytic. And Matthew groups these three miracles together uh, a couple of ways. One, you know, just geographically, he ties them all to um, Jesus and his disciples going across the, the, the Sea of Galilee, or better, the Lake of Galilee. Right? Um, the first miracle takes place during the crossing. The second miracle is when they get on the other side of the lake in Gentile territory. And then the third miracle is when they're back on um, Jewish soil. But he also ties these three um, scenes, these three miracles together with a theme. And I think you'll see it as we read it. He, he's highlighting the authority of Christ. He's highlighting the power and the authority of Jesus. And, and so... Uh, Mark and Luke also record these three miracles, but as Matthew often does, it's interesting, Matthew um, really condenses them. He gives them to us in, in like a streamlined fashion, so we're getting it rapid fire, one after another. It's like, it, it's, it's as if Matthew's not as concerned about giving us all the details to kind of give an entertaining story, rather he's just wanting us to see, boom, 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 the authority of, of Jesus. And so that's... That's what we're going to do today. We're going to consider these, these three accounts and, and, and look at this common theme of Jesus' unparalleled authority. And my prayer is that as we study that, that you'll be in awe, that you'll be in awe of the power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ and that you'll respond um, accordingly. So will you turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 8, verse 23, if you haven't already. Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. If you're using the black Bibles that were in a case back there, uh, that's page 813. And I'd ask the congregation to please stand for the reading of God's word. I want to read Matthew 8, 23 down through 9, 8. So please follow along as I read. 
And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this? that even winds and sea obey him. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. And the crowd saw it, or when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. The title of the sermon is No Greater Power. No greater power. And what I mean by that is Jesus has absolute, unparalleled power and authority. There is no one, even with him, there's no one even close to him. I think about that passage in Ephesians 1 where it talks about the risen and exalted Christ has been seated far above all rule and power and authority. He's ruling from his throne at the Father's right hand in heaven right now. And so this morning, as we go through these miracle accounts, I want us to recognize the supreme authority of Jesus, okay? That's the first goal, is just to to observe the power of Christ. And then secondly, I want us to consider and notice how people respond to that power, okay? So let's, let's go ahead and jump in. Verse 23, again, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. So Jesus gets into a boat with his disciples. They set out across the, what is often called the Sea of Galilee. They're likely in a fishing boat, right? As some of his disciples were fishermen. They've recovered a boat from around that time, and it was about 26 feet long and 7 feet wide. So that kind of gives you an idea of probably the size of boat they were in. Not, not a you know, little dinky boat, but not a huge boat either, Okay. Verse 24, behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he, Jesus, was asleep. Now, the Sea of Galilee is known for its turbulent weather. It's because um, 
The sea itself sits 700 feet below sea level in a basin, but it's surrounded by mountains. And so, for one, that acts like a wind tunnel, right? Just channels the the wind. And and on top of that, you've got like cooler air coming from the mountains, mixing with the warmer air, and it just creates all kinds of storms. It's known for that. And so Jesus and the disciples are caught on the sea in one of these storms. And and again, many of his disciples were seasoned fishermen, so I'm, I'm sure this wasn't their their first storm, right? This one, their first rodeo, as we say. But yet, we know that this was a a major storm. This was worse than probably most because even they, we're going to see, were panicked. These seasoned fishermen were panicked. And Matthew calls it a great storm, right? He uses the, it's interesting when you see that, he says, there arose, verse 24, a great storm on the sea. And the Greek word there is the word that is translated seismic. Right? And so we think of earthquakes. And so what, what Matthew's kind of, the picture we're getting here is, this is like an earthquake on the water. It's so violent. It's so turbulent. And verse 24 also says, the boat was being swamped by the waves. So this is a dangerous storm. If you can picture that scene of these disciples in this boat, and, and the winds are just blowing against them. The waves are, are beating against the boat. The boat's going up and down, and, and waves are crashing over into the boat, it says, and swamping the boat. So no doubt the boat's starting to sink, and I'm sure things are breaking and cracking, rain's coming down. And so you can just picture what the disciples are doing, right? What would you be doing? Right? You'd be scooping out. Exactly, Tim. You'd be frantically pailing water, right? You know, like, oh, oh man, let's get this water out of the boat. And, and, you know, maybe you're trying to pull on some ropes or you're trying to man some oars or something, something to try to stabilize this boat. But yet they're, they're, they're afraid. They're not able to, to get control here. And it's surprising, isn't it, that in the midst of this great storm, Jesus is asleep, <laughs> Again, the disciples are no doubt struggling, but there's Jesus fast asleep, it says. And, and again, that reminds us that Jesus became a man. He's, he's the uh, fully God, fully man. He was a man like us, with, but uh, with the physical weaknesses. So a man like us, yet without sin. And so Jesus has been ministering. He's been proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He's been demonstrating the power of the inbreaking kingdom through many healings and, and exorcisms. And so he's tired. He's asleep. But as I thought about that, obviously God has providentially orchestrated these circumstances, hasn't he? God has brought the storm. Um, God, you know, has Jesus asleep to teach the disciples a lesson, right? So Jesus is asleep. The storm is so bad. The disciples, again, these experienced fishermen are afraid for their lives. So verse 25 says, they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord. We are perishing. Verse 26, and he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? So Jesus wakes up and says, guys, why are you so afraid? Where is your faith? Haven't you been watching what I've been doing? Haven't you seen all the demons I've cast out? Haven't you seen the miracles I've been doing, the healings? Have you not yet learned who I am and what I can do? Why are you not trusting me? When are you going to learn to trust me? I think all of that was kind of in that question, in that rebuke. Verse 26, then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Again, Matthew is very concise, but 
but it doesn't take away from the, the picture that we should see in our minds, right? The, this violent storm, winds and waves, and, and then all of a sudden Jesus gets up. We know from other gospel accounts he just says one word, really, in the original, right? But peace be still, right? And instantly everything's calm. Instantly there's this great calm. The wind that had been howling stops. The sails that had been flapping violently, they would have just, just kind of fallen limp. The crashing waves immediately become as smooth as glass. This is supernatural. This was not just something kind of gradually dying down. This was chaos and, and danger going to instant calmness. This was a miracle. And so imagine the disciples standing there. Imagine if you had seen that. Right? You've been right in the middle of this big storm. Jesus gets up, says a word, and everything's instantly calm. Imagine what your thoughts would be. This, this man has just done this. I think what would have been going through the disciples' minds is, is a lot of Scripture. Right? I mean, um, verse 27 shows the disciples' response. Uh, It says, and the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? (laughs) I mean, they're in awe over what they've just witnessed. They know that this is something that only God can do. And I think most people would know that, right? Only God can do this. But again, they're also, I think, thinking of scriptures. Because the Old Testament scriptures repeatedly talk about how God is the one who stills the wind and the seas. There's many examples of that. I'll give you just three. Psalm 65, verse 5 says, By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hopes of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, verse 7, who stills the roaring of the seas. So there it's attributed to God. He's the one who stills the roaring of the seas. Psalm 89, 8. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 107, verse 25 says, The Lord commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. And then verse 28 says, The people cried to the Lord in their distress, he deli- or in their trouble. He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad, the psalm goes on to say, that the waters were quiet and that he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord Yahweh for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. I mean, the disciples knew these passages. Those those were all, what, from the Psalms. I mean, they they grew up singing those in in their church. Can you imagine that? They, They sing this, they know this about God, and now this man, Jesus of Nazareth, has just done the very thing that is attributed to God alone. So they ask, what sort of man is this? It's like they're looking for a category. He, he's completely different. We've never met a man like this before. Is he a prophet? 
I mean, God worked through the prophets like Elijah, Elisha, and Old Testament to perform miracles over nature. But no, this is different because the prophets, they would, they would pray to God, right? They'd say, God, do this, and, and, and then it would happen, and, and then they, they made it very clear, the prophets did, that it wasn't them doing it, it was God working through them. But Jesus hadn't done that. Right? He had not prayed for God's power. He woke up and simply spoke himself. He did this in his own power. Jesus had dealt with the situation directly. He uttered a command, and instantly nature obeyed. Why? Because he's God in the flesh, right? The the wind and the waves know the voice of their creator. All things were made through him, Scripture says. He sustains all things by his powerful word. The sea recognized the command of its Lord. Jesus silenced it with the word. And so again, Jesus is unlike any man they've ever met. A man who could speak to wind and waves and have them obey him. Jesus is in a class all by himself. He does things that only God can do. And again, we know that he is God in the flesh. At this point in the Gospels, uh, the disciples don't have all that figured out yet. But they're at least posing the right question, aren't they? What sort of man is this? In this next account then, it's interesting. That that question is going to be answered, but it's going to come from a, a very surprising source. So let's move on to the next account, verse 28. And when he came to the other side, right, so now they've crossed to the country of the Gadarenes, Two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. Again, if you're familiar with Mark and Luke's account, this is going to be very concise. Matthew's not going to spend much detail on the, on the, the men himself, but just on what Jesus does. So Jesus and his disciples have made it across the Sea of Galilee, arrived in Gentile territory. They no sooner land and get out of the boat than these two demon-possessed men come rushing towards them. Matthew says two. Mark and Luke just talk about one man. For whatever reason, Mark and Luke are just focusing on one man, but evidently there were two. Right? Like I said, Matthew doesn't provide all the background detail. He just says they're demon-possessed, they're fierce, they live among the tombs. We know from Mark and Luke that these men, had, uh, these demons, excuse me, had caused the men to be very strong and violent, unrestrainable. The townspeople had tried to restrain them with chains. They would break it. They, they would roam around naked, cutting themselves with stones. I mean, it's an awful, awful picture of, of just evil and what evil is doing to these, to these men. Again, the other accounts tell us that it's not just one demon that's in each man. No, there actually a large number of demons have possessed these men. So large that they say their name is legion, which means which meant thousands, right? A legion of Roman soldiers was like 6,000 soldiers and and then some. So the, a multitude of demonic forces have taken possession of these men. But never so I mean the, the picture we're to get is is Power, right? I mean, this is, there's, there's some power there. Greater power than humans have, right? Humans can't restrain these men. The, no one else has been able to stop these, these men, these demons inside the men. So we see this picture of power. And yet, we're going to see they're no match for Jesus, right? Despite their numbers and their power and whatever, the presence of Jesus causes the demonic forces to panic. Verse 29, behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? 
Now, it's, it's, the, it's the men uttering the words, but, but we know it's really the demons saying this, right? The demons know who Jesus is. They address him as the Son of God. They know that, that Jesus is God in the flesh, the eternal Son of God. They know that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And they know that as God's promised King, Jesus had come to defeat Satan and his minions. And, and so <laughs> they're seeing the handwriting on the wall. They're like, wow, the arrival of Jesus, it marks the beginning of the end for us. And so they cry out to Jesus, have you come here to torment us before the time? They know that their ultimate doom is sure. They know how this story is going to end. That they, along with the devil, will be thrown into the lake of fire where they'll be tormented forever and ever, Revelation 20, verse 10. And so the demons are saying, Jesus, don't send us there now. Don't put the final judgment on us yet. They know how awful hell is and they don't want to go there yet. And so they make this request in verse 30. It says, Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. You see how, how Jesus is in complete control here? I mean, this isn't like, you know, oh, back and forth battle. I mean, this is just like them, you know, like begging him. They recognize his authority. Jesus can send them wherever he wants. There's nothing the demons can do about it. They're going to have to obey the bidding of Jesus. And interestingly, Jesus grants the request. He gives them permission to enter the pigs. Verse 32, he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. So another example of Jesus' sovereign power. Just like the the calming of the sea was instantaneous, so this exorcism is instantaneous. It's complete. It didn't matter if it was one demon or thousands, hundreds of thousands of demons. Jesus has the power to defeat evil and set people free. Now, again, I know this story gives us some questions like, well, what's up with the pigs, right? You know, Jesus, why would you do that? I mean, why why hurt the poor pigs, you know? And obviously it it, it, uh, is hurting the livelihood of the townspeople. We don't, we don't know. We can kind of speculate a few reasons. I mean, it highlights the power of Christ. It, 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 I think it illustrates for us the, um, something of the number of the demons that were in the men, right? You know, that they took over a whole herd of pigs. And, and again, it shows, it shows something of their evilness, of their power, that they just take those pigs right off in into the waters. It, it shows us, again, reminds us what, what the devil's about. He, he's come to kill and destroy. And so the demons carry on his destructive work. But here it's on pigs, not men. But here's something also interesting as you're trying to you know, put your, wrap your mind around the whole pigs part. It really is foreshadowing the ultimate defeat of Satan and evil. Right? In, one of the, in one of the other gospel accounts, they talk about, have you come to throw us in the abyss? And so this, you know, this was a picture of what's going to happen to the wicked in the end. Again, of the final judgment that's going to come upon them when they're cast into the lake of fire forever by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this was a, a foreshadowing of that. 
But again, what we know for sure in, in the Gospels is Jesus casting out demons is a sign that the kingdom of God has come, that it's here. The kingdom of God is present in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus' liberating power is a pledge and symbol that Satan will be ultimately defeated in the end. Again, his doom is sure because of the power of Christ. A day is coming when Jesus will destroy them once and for all. He's already defeated them at the cross and the, and, the, and the empty tomb, and he's coming again. And at his second coming, he will eradicate all evil once and for all. So, again, if you want to know more about the man and what, what happened to, to, to him, how he changes what, the dialogue, you have to read the other accounts. Matthew skips all that, just shows the response of the townspeople, verse 33 The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Verse 34, And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. We might have expected the townspeople to be happy, right? You know, I mean, happy for the men. I mean, they've just gotten their life back. And even happy for themselves, in a sense, like we don't have these guys terrorizing things anymore. No one's celebrating, no one's saying thank you. Instead, they're begging Jesus to leave. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Why this negative response? These are Gentiles. They're probably focused on the financial loss of the pigs, right? I mean, that was no small thing to them, I'm sure. Um, I guess they're blaming Jesus, right? They're wanting him to leave before he does any more damage to their economy. Maybe that's the big reason they just want him to leave. Perhaps they're They're also thinking, wow, if Jesus has that kind of power and authority, what's he going to expect of me? Maybe he's going to want to do a work in my life too. You know, who knows what, if they were idolaters, completely secular, but we know that The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness often rejects the light. It doesn't want its deeds exposed as evil, right? And so that's what they're doing. They're they're saying, go away, Jesus. Just leave us. And we, we know Jesus does. And it's sad, isn't it, that many people do the same thing to Jesus today. Maybe Christians will will point people to Jesus, or they they hear Jesus being proclaimed at church or on the radio or internet or something. They recognize Jesus' power, but they don't want to make the changes that Jesus requires of their life. They know there's something unique about him, there's something special about him, but he has demands, and, and I don't want that. They're right, he does have demands. He's going to demand a change of allegiance. <laughs> and so... Again, I think people often push Jesus away, keep him at arm's length, so to speak, because they don't want to quit living for themselves. They know that Jesus is going to demand them to live for him because he's Lord, and they don't want to make that change. They know Jesus is going to ask them to forsake their sin. And, and again, this is one of the twisted things about sin and in the deceit of it and the enslaving power of it, right? Even though 
and, and think about the people you, you witness to. Maybe think about even your own tendencies at times. Even though sin is harming us, even though we know it's controlling us, sometimes we just don't want to let it go. We love our sin too much. And that's how many people are. They don't want to give up their sins, so they're like, Jesus, please leave me alone. They push away the very person who could save them from their sin, who could save them from the wrath of God, who could set them free from the enslaving power of sin. They push him away. And so this this story takes a very sad turn here. And I pray that no one will make that same error today. Through the preaching of God's word, Jesus is being proclaimed to you as the one who can set you free from sin and death, eternal death. And yes, he is Lord, and he's going to make demands on your life, and we'll talk about that. But don't push him away. One more account to consider this morning as we move into chapter 9. Again, Matthew links all these together. Um, They're all worthy of a separate sermon, no doubt, but he links them together because look at verse 1. He mentions the boat again. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. So he's back in, they go back across the Lake of Galilee. They're now back in Capernaum. Verse 2, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. I know I sound like a broken record, but Matthew leaves out a lot of details on this story too, right? He doesn't tell us that Jesus is teaching in a crowded house and so crowded the men can't get their friend, their, par- their paralyzed friend through. And so they climb up on the roof and, and cut through the roof and lower him down right in the middle of his teaching. They don't, Matthew doesn't share any of that. He just gets right to the point. Verse 2, he wants to hone in on what Jesus does, right? It says, verse 1 says, they brought, people brought to him a paralytic. That's true. Doesn't matter how they did it. <laughs> verse 2, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. So again, Jesus saw their their, their uh Bold move, we could say. Their, their intense seeking, he saw that as an expression of faith, really of all their faith. The men bringing him, the paralytic as well, he, he knew he had a need. He knew that he, he needed his friends to bring him to Jesus. He believed that Jesus was the only one who could meet that need. And so to everyone's surprise, what does Jesus do? I mean, everybody knew what, what, the, what the men were wanting Jesus to do, right? I mean, because by this time, Jesus has this reputation. He, man, he heals people. And so here they brought this man lying on a mat, paralyzed. Everybody knows he, they're wanting Jesus to heal him, but that's not what Jesus does. He says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And again, he doesn't say, well, the Lord has forgiven your sins. I mean, it's like he's saying it himself. He's claiming to have put the sins away himself. Your sins are forgiven. See, Jesus, everyone's focused on the man's paralysis, but Jesus knew that his greatest need was forgiveness because like all people, this man had broken God's laws. He stood guilty before his creator. If not forgiven, his sins would keep him separated from God for all eternity. And and so Jesus declares that his sins were forgiven. He had demonstrated faith in Christ to meet his needs. His sins were forgiven. He's been rescued from the wrath of God. But this 
elicits a response from some people, right? Verse 3, behold, some of the scribes, remember who they are? They're the teachers of the law. They're, they're kind of the, the part of the re- religious rulers of, of the day. They said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. So they're angry, aren't they? They're angry because they're thinking only God can forgive sins. And they're not wrong, right? <laughs> they're right. Only God can forgive sins. Not the chief priests. He can't forgive sins. He can't give a promise of forgiveness. No, it has to be that forgiveness of sins is the exclusive right of God. And so they see what Jesus is doing here, right? He's making a claim to be God. He's taking a prerogative that belongs to God. No one can forgive sins but God alone, one of the other accounts says. So they accuse Jesus of blasphemy, of defiling God's name, of violating God's majesty by claiming to do what only God can do. And that was a serious charge. I mean, it was punishable by death. And so we're starting to see the, the resistance that's going to be forming against Jesus. The, and well, that'll play itself out in the chapters to come. But Jesus knew what was happening, right? He was not unaware of their objections. So verse 4 says, But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, turns his attention to them, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Kind of put them on the spot, right? He knew what they were thinking. We know our, our hearts are open books before our Creator. So Jesus calls them out on the carpet for their evil thoughts, poses, and then poses a question to them. Verse 5 For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Interesting question, isn't it? Saying which is easier? To say, your sins are forgiven, or to tell this paralytic to rise and walk? So let's think about that for just a minute. Which one is easier? I mean, um, we know the forgiving of sins is more important, right? I mean, that's essential. But what Jesus is saying is it's easier to claim to forgive sins since no one can really prove it wrong, right? It's an invisible transaction. I mean, we, can't, we don't go around and look at people and know like, wow, have, have your sins all been washed away? I mean, we, we can't see that, right? It's not like there's a little meter in our hearts or something. That's something that God does. So in a way, that is easier to claim because it's invisible, but to make a claim for this man to get up and walk, that's, that's putting yourself out there. That's putting everything on the line, right? Because either he will or he won't. Everyone will be able to see if he gets up or if he doesn't. And So do you understand what Jesus is doing here? He's saying, why are you speaking evil? You guys are thinking I'm blaspheming. You don't think I have the authority. You don't think I have the credentials to say that this man's sins are forgiven. Well, how about if I do something else that only God can do, right? Because you're right, only God can forgive sins. What if I do something else that only God can do and, that, and you see it? You can see it for yourselves, verse 6. But that you may know that the Son of Man, there he is using that title again. Remember, we talked about that last week. That the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, so he's been directing this to the scribes, right? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, turns to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So Jesus has put it out there. He's put himself on the line. If the paralytic walks, 
then that shows that Jesus has the authority, right? If he doesn't, then Jesus is a fraud. Verse 7, again, short and sweet from Matthew. He rose and went home. (laughs) Awesome miracle, right? Right before their very eyes. Immediately the paralytic was healed. He did exactly what Jesus said. He gets up, when, again, other accounts talk about him even praising God, you know, skipping out of there, basically. And so it shows the power of Christ, but not just for the healing, right? I mean, that's awesome. But the, the greater power and authority is, is that Jesus' claim has been proven true. He has power and authority to forgive sins. Jesus does Once again, right, this is the theme we're seeing. Once again, Jesus does what only God can do. And so, it's a pretty straightforward conclusion, isn't it? If Jesus keeps doing what only God can do, then who is Jesus? He's God, right? He's God in the flesh. And that's what everybody's wrestling with in these accounts. Verse 8, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. Right? So their response here is, is fear, which is appropriate. Whenever God does something in the Bible in front of people, it's, it, it should cause them to be afraid. They're in awe. They're afraid. They glorified God who had given such authority to men, in other words, to this man, Jesus. So they're sorting it all out too, but they, again, they see there's something very unique about this man. They knew they had witnessed something that only God could do. And so like the paralytic, they glorify God for giving such power, such authority to a man, to Jesus of Nazareth. And so I want us to see, again, this morning in all these accounts, rapid fire, to just see the power of Jesus. The power of the Lord Jesus Christ. The wind and the waves obey His voice. Demons are no match for Him. And He even has the power to forgive sins. And not only is this just showing power, but again, this is all pointing to the fact that Jesus is the promised Savior. I mean, these are not just random displays of power. By, by calming the sea, by casting out demons, by healing the sick, and certainly by claiming to forgive sins, he's reversing the effects of the fall, like we've been talking about in Matthew, right? Jesus had come into this, this fallen, evil, broken world, and he'd come to conquer the powers of darkness which are arrayed against him and his people. And so Jesus, we know, triumphed over sin and its effects. How? By becoming sin for us. That's where all this is going, right? Again, Jesus didn't come to be a miracle worker. He's come to bring in the kingdom of God, and he's come to live in place of his people and die in place of his people on the cross as a perfect, atoning sacrifice for sin. And so on the cross, Jesus fully satisfied and turned away God's wrath against his people. God judged that sin. It wasn't Jesus' sin. It was the sin of all those who trust in him. 
And then three days later, Jesus rose from the dead in victory. And like I said at the outset, now the Bible is clear. Where is Jesus? He is He's risen and reigning at the Father's right hand. Still fully God and fully man. But now in a glorified human body, no more weakness, no more getting tired. He's reigning, building his kingdom through the preaching of the gospel. And like I said, one day he's going to return to destroy sin once and for all. So we should, again, be encouraged by that, right? These miracles, these, the calming of the sea, that's just a foretaste of what Jesus is going to do globally when he comes and removes all effects of sin, recreates a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus was showing his disciples who he is and what he had come to do. Not only can he get them out of a jam, right, and help them through some trials and troubles, but he was going to, through his death and resurrection, he was going to deliver them from sin, from eternal death. And so this morning, I trust you see that Jesus has absolute unrivaled power. There is no one greater. There's no one more powerful. In the, again, like Paul says, <laughs> in the physical realm or the spiritual realm, Jesus is far above. He is the most powerful one, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a, a fact. doesn't matter if you believe it or not. It is true. And it's a reality, unchanging reality. Jesus is Lord of all. That was the early confession of the church, wasn't it? Jesus is Lord. Be good thing for us to confess often. Mandy did it this morning, right? May we all do it. Jesus is Lord. So how should we respond to that truth? I have just I want to quickly just share with you four four ways we should respond and then I'll close. That's the reality, that's the truth, that's the fact. Jesus is Lord of all. Unparalleled authority, unrivaled power. So how how should we respond? Number one, call out to him. Call out to him. Like the disciples in the storm, like the demon-possessed men, like the paralytic, we all need rescued. By nature, we are all slaves to sin and enemies of God. Our sin and rebellion against God has left us separated from him and headed for eternal punishment. But Jesus, I hope you see that this morning, Jesus is mighty to save. He has powerfully defeated sin and death and evil by dying on the cross and rising again. And now from his heavenly throne, Jesus continues to powerfully save all of those who call out to him in repentance and faith. And so the Bible says, when you turn from your sins and by faith embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior, God will forgive your sins. He will come live inside you by his spirit. He will give you a new heart that loves God. He'll give you eternal life. That though you'll still have to deal with the effects of, of sin in this life, you know, getting sick and dealing with evil and persecution and temptations, and, and unless Jesus comes first, you'll die. But you know that you'll be raised with Christ when he returns in a perfect glorified body, and you'll be with him forever. So Jesus is mighty to save. And so I, I urge you all, call out to him, believe in him, call out to him today by faith, and he will save you. 
Second response to Jesus' power is submit to him. Submit to him. Jesus is Lord. There is no one greater. By, he, he's, he's supreme because by nature he's the eternal son of God. And then again, because of his death and resurrection, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. And so Jesus is Lord. He is reigning now and forever. He is king. He's a good and righteous king. And so he has authority to command us how to live. And that's what he does through his word. So it's a good reminder for us, right? Even those who would claim the name of Christ, who who seek to be followers of Christ, submit to him. Obey his word. Are you obeying his commands? Are you submitting to him in all areas of your life? Are you seeking to do that? I know we struggle with sin, but are you desiring to do that? Are you seeking to grow in that? If if a member of the body comes along and and lovingly just points out an area of sin and and, and shows you the word of God and it's being rightly interpreted and all that, how are you going to respond to that? (laughs) Jesus has authority over all areas of our lives. Our thought life, our purity life, our, how, we, how we live in our families, right? How we treat one another, what we should pursue, what we should put our hope in. Submit to him. Ask for God's grace to, to obey him. Thirdly, then trust him. Trust him, right? Again, this is all pointing back to the fact that Jesus is all-powerful. How should that affect my life? Well, I need to call out to him. I need to submit to him. I need to trust him, don't I? We live in a fallen, chaotic world. Trials buffet us. Evil assails us. In our own strength, it is too much for us, isn't it? I mean, in our own strength, we're overwhelmed daily by the evil that's in this world, by the evil that's still in our own hearts. We're tempted to give in to fear. And we're tempted to give in to dread. We're tempted to be overcome with doubt and despair. But loved ones, let us not do that. Instead, by God's grace, let's trust in our good and powerful Lord. And that what Jesus told the disciples, right? Why are you afraid? Why, where's your faith? We know Jesus is sovereign over every, we could say, storm in our lives, right? Over every trial. Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is far above any evil that we're going to face in this country. And we, we will and do face evil for, for, for following Christ. In this world you will have trouble, Jesus says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So let us trust Jesus. Jesus is sovereignly working through the trials, working through the ungodly leaders to accomplish his good purposes. He is powerfully working all things together for our ultimate good and for his glory. All right, then fourth response and last one, worship him. That's always a good application, isn't it? A good response, worship him. I mean, let's rejoice in this. Jesus is Lord over all. There's no one more powerful than him. Our God is a mighty God. Our Savior is Lord far above any other power. And so let's praise him for creating and sustaining all things by his powerful word. Let's praise him for powerfully defeating sin and death at the cross. 
Let's rejoice in his sovereign power over all the calamities of this fallen world. And let's praise him that he is coming again in power and great glory. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we praise you. Lord, I know that now we see as a, as a dimly through a glass. Lord, but we believe this by your grace. You've, get, you've opened our eyes. We believe this, that we believe you did these things that we just read about. And we believe that you are risen and exalted at your Father's right hand, that you are coming again, that you are the Lord of all, that you are the ultimate King. And so what, what, how that should affect our lives. Oh, may every one of us think about the fact that we're going to stand before you someday, that someday we're going to give an account to you for how we live. May, may we all remember that you're our only hope. You are king and you are gracious. You forgive all who turn to you. And so please draw many to yourself today in, in repentance and faith. For any who've, not, who've kind of turned their back on you, for, who, are, who are seeking to live their own lives, Lord, bring them back. Convict them, cause them to repent. Remind them that you are Lord of, over all. We praise you that you are mighty to save, that you are trustworthy, that you are the, the solid rock on which we stand, and that all who put their hope in you will never be ashamed. May you, may you give us grace to trust you more, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.